Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I might go into her, for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me his son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called him Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Good morning. My name's Adam, and I'm one of the K-12 directors here at Lakeland. I'm super excited to be with you guys again this week, uh, mostly because I just absolutely love this topic. Uh, Over the next several months here at Lakeland, we're going to be on a pretty awesome, incredible journey of trying to discover Jesus through the Old Testament And that's what we're going to be doing here this morning as well in the story that we just read. Of all the books that I read in my English classes in high school, my favorite was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Now, I'd like for you to do something for me. If you could turn and see if there's anyone around you who just fell asleep at the mere mention of the name Dickens, if you could wake them up, that would be super helpful to me. Actually, I'll give you just like, Five seconds to do that. There were several reasons I was drawn to this book. One was that the main character in the story, a boy named Pip, just seemed to be the kind of character I could easily identify with. A boy from humble origins trying to make his way in the big bright lights of the city. It was inspiring. Of course, there was the performance by Gwyneth Paltrow in the movie version that came out my senior year of high school okay, maybe my high school self's crush on Gwyneth had something to do with my fondness for the story. Maybe. 
But the main reason that it stuck with me and stood out to me among all of the other books that I read during this time in my life was the truth about the human condition and the human experience that I felt it really conveyed. For those who don't know the story, well, there might be a spoiler or two coming, so I'm sorry about that. On the other hand, I sort of feel like classic works of literature published on or before the year 1861 are kind of fair game. If you haven't read it yet, well, you've had time. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Back to the story. A boy named Pitt begins to spend time at the home of a wealthy old woman named Miss Havisham playing with her adopted daughter, Estella. Now, Miss Havisham was kind of a recluse and a weird one at that. She would wear around a dirty old wedding dress around the house. Um, and she would keep a rotting old wedding cake sitting up on the dinner table. Super weird. Pip grows extremely fond of Estella and very much desires her attention and affection. The rest of the story has its share of twists and turns, um, but at the core... Pip grows up to love and desire Estella very intensely. But Estella constantly toys with his heart, reeling him in, only to push him away time and time again. Pip is driven to near madness by this, ends up alienating his family and friends back home, racks up a huge debt, is thrown into prison because of it, and eventually returns home completely ill mostly from a broken heart. Near the end of the book, Pip confronts Estella, pours out his heart to her, tells her of his deep love, but Estella treats him very cold and apathetically. Miss Havisham regretfully admits that she had actually raised Estella to be cold and heartless because Miss Havisham had been left at the altar decades ago, and could not bear to deal with the pain it had caused her. So, what was the enduring truth that I found in this story? Well, I'll admit it's a little bit dark, but it's that human beings are very adept at letting one another down. It's odd to look back on this time in my life and to realize that most of my favorite stories and shows had a very similar theme. There's The Great Gatsby, which is probably my favorite novel of all time. Great Expectations, of course. The Jerry Springer Show. (laughs) And this morning, we're going to take a deeper look at the Bible, uh, at a story that I'm sure you've already noticed, has a lot in common with those other things, including an episode of The Jerry Springer Show. This morning, I want to challenge us to consider something with this story, something that might seem a little bit surprising. I want us to consider the possibility that the Bible is not a proponent of family relationships as the foundation of Christian life, but instead points us to something else. Now, let me be clear. I absolutely consider myself to be a family man. I love my wife very much. And I would consider my almost two-year-old son to be one of the absolute greatest gifts that I could have ever asked for. 
I would rather be hanging out with them than doing almost anything else in the entire world. Family is a great gift, and we should absolutely treat it that way. On the other hand, we have stories like this one today. The tale of Jacob and his sister wives. And while this story is certainly an extreme version of the Old Testament dysfunctional family tale, it is not an uncommon one. Here is the family dysfunction we can find within the first 30 chapters of Genesis alone. One brother killing another, a husband who claims that his wife is actually his sister so that he will not be harmed by these men who might potentially be envious of him, a father who banishes his son and wife from his home, another husband who claims that his wife is actually his sister for very similar reasons, and this battle between a husband and a wife who among them have different favorites between their two son, twin son boys, um, and differences of opinion as to which of them they would rather become more successful in life. Wow. We haven't even touched on the practice of polygamy. Now, I'm not saying that Scripture doesn't hold family in higher esteem than all of this, or that it doesn't believe that family relationships can be anything more. I am saying that family cannot save us. It cannot save us from our problems It cannot save us from our sadness. It cannot save us from ourselves. But there is something that can. This leads us right into our story for this morning from Genesis chapter 29. It's probably important at the outset to recognize that there really aren't any heroes in this story. One of my real soapbox issues with the Bible is that I fear that we sometimes hold up these fallen, fallible people in Bible stories as our champions, as these examples that we should follow, when the reality is the only real hero in the Bible is God himself. But let's be honest. With this story and these people, I actually don't think we're going to have much problem with this this morning. If anything, we probably have to remind ourselves to be non-judgmental and charitable with this mess of a family. I don't think we're in much danger of putting these people on any kind of pedestal. We find Jacob in this story in a very similar place to where we found him last week, desperately running from a situation he was entirely responsible for. It's like one of those awesome slow-motion scenes in an action movie where the hero is walking as though on a Sunday stroll without any care in the world while a huge, giant explosion erupts in the background. Here, we have Jacob, our anti-hero, emerging from a similar giant explosion of trouble and pain and anger. Only he's not walking all cool and calm and collected. Jacob is running for his life. He had stolen his father's inheritance and his blessing from his brother. His father had died, and his brother was so angry he wanted to kill him. So Jacob runs to his uncle Laban's house, and Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. One of my favorite Christian writers and preachers, Tim Keller, to whom, first of all, I'm indebted for the idea to even preach this topic, I highly recommend his book, 
counterfeit gods for a discussion of similar topics. But Keller has a very interesting observation when it comes to the wording used here in verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Keller points out that this verse makes it seem like Leah maybe has bad eyesight or something. Leah's eyes were weak. Maybe she just needs glasses. But that doesn't make any sense with what follows right after it, what follows after the word, but. The text doesn't say, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she could see really, really far. It says, but Rachel was beautiful. Now, um, whatever the Hebrew is getting at by using the word weak here, because that's really the key to this, right? It's obviously something that had left Leah looking largely unattractive, at least by the standards of the culture at the time. So not surprisingly, Jacob doesn't really notice Leah all that much. He does notice Rachel. Boy, does he. And Jacob? Oh, Jacob is done for. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced love at first sight. But for those of you who have, or for those of you who that sort of thing just kind of does it for you in general, maybe you can live vicariously through Jacob here. Jacob is over the moon in love with Rachel. How over the moon is he? Well, let's put it this way. A guy whose entire lot in life was built on swindling and cheating people is so blinded, so distracted by his love for this woman that he, the great trickster and liar of the Old Testament, is totally swindled himself. Uncle Laban really works Jacob over here. If I were to preach a message on how to best swindle people, and of course I'm not, and I wouldn't, I would never do that. Kids, lying and cheating and swindling people is bad. Don't ever do it. But if I were, one of the things I would tell you is that you never, ever put your cards out on the table too soon. Jacob makes his desires so clear here to Laban that he really just left himself wide open to being conned by a fellow con artist. He basically tells Laban, I'll do anything if I can marry your daughter, Rachel. I would work for you for seven years if I could just marry her. Now, if you notice, Laban gives Jacob a total non-answer here, but cleverly disguised as a yes. Laban actually doesn't say yes here. He says, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other random guy voice trailing off. Classic swindler move. But Jacob is much too blinded by his love for Rachel to see it. And he begins working for Laban, and he works for him seven years. Seven years. For us today, this feels like forever. I mean, does anybody actually work at the same job for seven years anymore? And this is hard work, outdoor work, chasing sheep around in the desert, hot, difficult labor. But Jacob is so in love with Rachel that the text tells us it seemed like mere moments, only a few days, it was so worth it to him. 
You hopeless romantics out there can all let a little knowing sigh together. (sighs) We can all relate to this, though, whether that means that we all have a little bit of hopeless romantic in us or what. Jacob has built Rachel up in his mind so much now. She is the answer to all that plagues him, literally the answer to his prayers, and he would do absolutely anything to get her. It's not difficult to see into Jacob's mind here. All of my problems, all of my fears, the things I'm running from, the ruins of a broken family back home, it would all be worth it if God would just grant me this one thing, if I could have this beautiful, amazing woman to be my wife. So he does it. He finishes out his seven years of brutally hard work for Laban, and after the seven years, he's ready for the prize. Okay, let's get this going, Laban. I'm ready to marry Rachel. Now, what happens next is always difficult for people to picture. I have discussed this story with multiple groups of high school students, and they all want to know the exact same thing. How in the world could Laban switch daughters without Jacob having known it? They are picturing a modern wedding ceremony, and in doing so, I can see where they're coming from. There's no way this could happen with our modern wedding customs. But in Jacob's time and place, well, things were different. First of all, there was a lot of drinking. Well, on second thought, maybe that one's not all that different from today. (laughs) We'll move to the second one then. So second of all, there was no ceremony where a minister stood up front with the bride and the groom, surrounded by hundreds of people who watched them exchange vows and wedding rings and heard someone sing from this moment by Shania Twain. (laughs) Yes, I'm dating myself. But seriously, there was none of that. Instead, the bride-to-be would be completely veiled with her face completely covered, and they would engage in these... uh, traditional customs of the time, including having a large wedding feast, as the text this morning tells us about. So an almost certainly drunk Jacob lies down with his completely veiled new wife to consecrate the marriage. And the text here does a great job with the plot twist in verse 25. It says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I want you to bear with me for just a minute as I do something with this text that may not seem all that empathetic with respect to Leah. We're going to get back to Leah here in just a moment, and I think Leah is amazing, by far the least terrible human being in this entire story. And what I'm about to say actually has nothing to do with Leah herself and what she is worth. It has everything to do with Jacob and his perspective on the world. Now, Jacob had built up Rachel and his marriage and his life with her as this unattainably amazing thing. She had become his dream girl, the thing that was going to rescue him and make him feel like a success and a valuable, important person. 
Her beauty and her love would give him such passion, such energy, such reason to live. He would finally begin to enjoy life again with a person like this. Rachel was Jacob's salvation. But when he woke up the next morning, it wasn't actually Rachel. It was Leah. And this is where we are again going to be able to identify with Jacob in the story and where I would like your permission to be a little bit callous in my description of Leah. But when we do this, when we build something up to this level, when our hopes and dreams and everything in our lives is riding on the happiness that this one person or this one thing is going to be able to bring us, in the morning, it's going to disappoint. It's always going to disappoint. If you put your faith and happiness in the things of this world, even great things like marriage and family, in the morning, it's going to be a letdown. The person whose love and attention you just have to have in the morning, behold, it's going to be less than you hoped it would be. The love and respect and admiration that you crave from your kids or even your kids' own success in life, in the morning, behold, they are going to be less than you hoped they would be. And up to this point, we've been completely selfish, focusing only on ourselves and the way that these things and these people might or might not live up to our expectations of them. But let's be clear, and this is perhaps even more important. If you are relying on someone else to hold you up, not only is it going to hurt you to fall from the great heights of your hopes for them, the other person is going to be absolutely crushed by the weight of those expectations. No human being can live up to these hopes and needs, and especially not someone like a spouse or a child who can readily see the effects of their failures on your well-being. Again, this isn't Leah's fault. Jacob is the person whose expectations were completely out of whack in this story. Similarly, it's not the fault of the people that we build up too much either. They are fallible, imperfect people, just like us. They were never intended to give us everything we hoped they would. In the morning, when we awake to the reality of this world, not one of these people or things has any chance at all to be Rachel. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point, but wait. How do we know that the actual Rachel herself wouldn't have brought Jacob the kind of uh, things that he was hoping she would? Laban pulled a switcheroo on Jacob, so the analogy isn't quite fair. Well, as we read in Genesis 29... Jacob worked another seven years in order to get to marry Rachel too, does so, and lives happily ever after? Has all of his problems solved? Not exactly. If you read ahead in Genesis, and I encourage you to do so, 
you'll find that Jacob still has a lot of problems and a lot of family issues to deal with the entire rest of his life. This leads us to a very interesting observation here in the story. Not even Rachel turned out to be Rachel. (laughs) This is so important. In the morning, behold, even Rachel herself will be a disappointment. There is no Rachel. Rachel is a figment of our imaginations, a mistaken belief that there's just this one thing out there in the world that if we can get it, it will set our minds and hearts at ease. And this seems like a good time as any to switch from Jacob as protagonist of the story You see, as true as it is that people will never live up to Jacob's idealistic image of Rachel, but will always turn out to look more like Jacob's image of Leah in the story, it could be much, much worse than that. In the morning, they could turn out to be Jacob. As we have already touched on, Jacob was a total scam artist. Jacob espouses quite perfectly the attitude of the great 20th century philosopher, George Costanza, who said, it isn't a lie if you believe it. Similarly, of course, Laban is a lying, cheating con artist as well. And in their back-and-forth little game of attempting to cheat and con one another, one person is left as the clear loser in this story. And that person is Leah. One thing that might be easy to overlook culturally in what Laban did to Jacob is what he had to gain from such a trick. In this time and place in history, women could not work, not in the traditional sense anyway. They could not own land or property. They could not amass wealth in any way except by marrying so if Laban could get someone to marry Leah, he would not, so if he could not, I'm sorry, get someone to marry Leah, he would not profit from her at all. Now this might sound extremely insensitive and heartless to us, and it should, but Leah would only end up costing him money in the long run. So one way to look at Leah's plight in the story is that she went from being the daughter that her father didn't want to being the wife that her husband didn't want. I don't want to skip over this point too quickly because this is such an incredibly sad and heartbreaking place to be in. Verse 30 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Not only was her husband not in love with her, he was totally in love with her sister, Perhaps none of us have been in this extreme of a place of feeling unwanted and unloved, but we've all been there to some extent. Life is not easy. Being a human, having these feelings, these needs, it's hard. It's not difficult to see why Leah would be looking for something, for anything that would make her feel loved and valued, to feel lovable and valuable. Just being a loving, helpful wife wasn't cutting it. 
Verse 31 tells us Leah didn't feel loved by Jacob. In fact, she felt hated by him. So Leah turned to the only other thing that she could possibly do in this time, in this culture, in order to try to feel valuable to her family. Bear Jacob children. So she prayed to God to help her with this. And the passage tells us that God granted her request and she became pregnant. This begins a really important passage, perhaps one of the most important in all of Scripture. How's that for some hype? First, we see Leah falling into the same predictable trap that we saw Jacob fall into with Rachel, pinning all of her hopes and her dreams and her identity on this specific family relationship. Since Leah believed that she herself wasn't enough to garner her husband's attention, it became all about her children. So she has her first son, and she names him Reuben. In Hebrew, Reuben literally means, see, a son. It's pretty straightforward. And Leah's reaction to Reuben's birth, now my husband will love me. But she's wrong. He does not. In the morning, behold, it was Jacob. You see what I did there? But Leah has another child, and she names him Simeon. The name Simeon in Hebrew sounds similar to the word for heard. And Leah says, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he has given me this son also. In other words, maybe this time will be different. But it's not. In the morning, behold, it was still Jacob. And Leah has another son, and she names him Levi. Now, Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. And Leah says, I have now given my husband three sons. Surely now he will feel attached to me. But she's wrong. He does not. In the morning, behold, it was still Jacob. At this point, we can practically feel the desperation on Leah's behalf. The story is bursting out the seams with sadness and anxiety and unfulfilled expectations. And we wait with Leah. We hope for her that something will change. But what can possibly change? At this point, Leah is so caught up in this hopeless cycle of putting her hopes into what having these kids will do for her life and for her self-image, and then having those hopes completely dashed by her jerk of a husband. But we await breathlessly to see what will happen because our own hopes lie with Leah. We too can feel hopeless sometimes. We often feel unwanted, and unloved. And we know very well what it feels like to pour your time and your energy into people and things that do not end up fulfilling us one single bit. And then we read, Leah has another son. Great, we think. Here we go again. Will it ever end? Will this ever go differently? 
But then, something in the narrative changes. Leah names her son Judah, and Judah is related to the Hebrew word for praise. Leah says, this time, I will praise the Lord. It's a change from the pattern we've come to expect in this part of the story. We see Leah saying nothing about her hope to feel loved by her husband or how much her own identity and self-worth is tied up in these kids she is having. No, this time, Leah praises the Lord. This time, Leah realizes, I am loved. I am valued. I am special to someone. I do have an identity as a strong, beautiful, hopeful woman. But it's not my husband who can give me any of this. And as much as I love them, it's not my kids either. It's God. There's something else important about Judah. When Leah had Judah, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. The Hebrew word that Leah uses for Lord here, it's not Adonai, the common word for Lord. It is Yahweh, the covenant name. This is the name that God used when he spoke to Abraham and promised to make a great nation of people out of Abraham's descendants. It's the name God used when he promised to bring a Savior that would come from these people, a Savior who would rescue and redeem the people from everything that ailed them. Perhaps God gave Leah a glimpse at this great future blessing to come because it was no coincidence that her moment of true understanding came when she bore Judah. Of all of Jacob's sons, who would grow up to become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, it was Judah who bore the messianic seed. Judah became the ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. And thus, so did Leah. God did feel Leah's pain, and he did bless her. His blessing was himself and his great love for her. And he blessed her by using her life to help bring about the salvation of the entire world. This is no small thing. And it's no small thing that in Leah's moment of revelation, this realization of her own worth and her new identity in God, we are pointed forward toward Jesus, the one who gives us true worth and true identity. Jesus is the true husband who does not require supermodel looks or the bearing of children in order to freely give his love. Jesus is the true son, obedient to the Father to the point of even death. Jesus is the true family, not marred by disappointment or frustration, but rather the source of all peace and joy and everlasting life. And it's no small thing that God chose to work through Leah rather than through Rachel when he began to establish this family, this lineage that would lead to Jesus. 
Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by this, but given the world we live in, it is surprising, but in a really beautiful way. God chooses to work through the underprivileged, the outsider, the foreigner. God chooses to work through the weak, the foolish, the rejected. And a couple of thousand years later, God would choose to do the ultimate work, the redemption of the entire world and all of his children through the ultimate picture of weakness and rejection. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, would go to the cross. And in doing so, he would lift us up to unimaginable strength and acceptance. This is our ultimate hope. This is our salvation. This is our God. This morning we will get a chance to respond to this beautiful truth by taking communion together. This is an opportunity for us to prayerfully encounter God as his gathered children and to take the important step of taking him into ourselves and hopefully letting him change us from the inside out. If the servers would like to come forward. As we eat the bread and the juice this morning, consider that this is exactly what we are doing, and that is no small thing. Of course, if you're here just exploring what this Jesus stuff is even all about, please feel free to remain seated and just reflect on what you heard. But if experiencing the God that you heard about this morning is something that you want to do, I encourage you to come forward and participate. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord, may we be thankful for your many gifts this morning. May we be grateful that you chose to work through community and through families in order to make your presence and your will known here on earth. But may we remember that the gifts are meant to point us to the giver. You are the one who gives us true peace, hope, and joy through your Son, Jesus Christ. With that, may we go out into the world and carry your love with us. Amen.